Well, as Psalm 19.1 famously says, the, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. The question that we're going to try to answer today in this conversation is, how do the heavens declare the glory of God? What is it about astronomy that we can learn? Or what does astronomy help us learn about God and who he is. And so joining me to have this conversation is Dr. Danny Faulkner. He is a PhD astronomer, received his PhD from the University of Indiana and taught astronomy and physics at the University of South Carolina, Lancaster for over 26 years, is now retired, but serves as the editor of the Creation Research Science Society Quarterly and has published over 100 papers and now works as a researcher, author and speaker for Answers in Genesis. So Dr. Faulkner, thank you so much for coming on the show and having this conversation with me. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, we are going to be talking about your uh, book that you recently uh, released called The Heavens, A Different View. Uh, again, trying to have this conversation of what do the heavens show us about God and what, is, what does it declare about him? And so uh, what is it about this book that you're trying to communicate? What, what are you trying to help people see or how do the heavens actually declare the glory of God? I think, first of all, you just see the, the beauty that we we get in photo, photography. You know, looking at things with our own eyes in the sky is, is really cool. Uh, using a telescope is, is even better. Uh, photographs can do a lot better than we can because our eyes can only collect light for about a tenth of a second, but uh, cameras can do it for a very long time. And I think it's one of the things that wowed me when I was very young, uh, just looking at uh at the images uh, that you could see in books way, way back. Many of them were black and white back then. And also the size of things, the distances of things, the universe is mind-blowingly large as it turns out. So I've always thought of the universe as a whole, uh, the heavens above us being like a billboard, advertising God's existence. And uh, as you mentioned, Psalm 19 in your opening, that's telling us uh, about that. The, the um, uh, so Romans 1, 19 and 20 expounds upon that a little bit as well. And it tells us that we're without excuse, men are without excuse, because uh, we look out, we see the world around us. It tells us two things. It tells us, first of all, there is a creator. And number two, it tells us he's very powerful. I think it's kind of obvious. The universe is a really big place, a lot of stuff in it, a lot of power and energy there. And a creator has to be greater than the thing he creates. It just doesn't work the other way around. And so... Um, uh, I think, on the other hand, that limits what we can learn about him from, from studying the, the heavens around us. We can learn of his existence and his power, but it doesn't tell us much about uh, his character, his attributes, <clears throat> what he expects of us, and uh, where we're going, where we come from. Yeah. And that's where we have to then turn to Scripture. So I'm hoping this will turn people to the Lord, but also turn them to, to look in Scripture to see what it has to say about him and about the heavens, too. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think, you know, that's one of the things I want to kind of get to is what can we learn about God from these things and and hopefully kind of the goal, right, of, of the goal of this show for those who maybe are joining for the first time is to get you to think deeply about Christianity, to learn to defend it well and faithfully live it out. And so uh, throughout this conversation, uh, Dr. Faulkner and I are going to be looking at what can we learn from astronomy that tells us about God. And there's a lot of ways in which hopefully Christians can agree with each other and, and, and to see God revealed uh, in nature at the same time as we were just discussing before we went live there's some points where we're going to disagree with each other throughout this conversation and hopefully try to model for you. How do Christians who maybe disagree on some points uh, have a proper, reasonable conversation uh, with each other trying to understand really, because I think our goal is to figure out who is God, how did he do this, and to try to understand him more fully. And so I just have to say, before we kind of jump in into this conversation, uh, your book is probably going to be different than one uh, that that is uh, maybe what they are expecting of how I normally uh, interview authors about their maybe very academic books on this show. Uh, tell us a little bit about, about the book as maybe I pull up a picture. Uh, as you mentioned, this is more of a coffee table book, not necessarily uh, the book that you're just going to sit down and read in the academic setting. Can you kind of explain how you went about forming and creating this book? Yeah, I started getting into astrophotography probably six or seven years ago. You know, I didn't have a, a, a digital SLR, single lens reflex camera until about then. And I began taking photographs uh, with the telescope. And then I started doing with this with a tripod. And I, my learning curve was pretty steep. And I, I started taking pictures. My, my primary interest at first was to find photo photographs, get photographs that I could use to illustrate some of my writing, some of my publications. 
a lot of the good, really good photographs out there are copyrighted and that can run into issues getting permission and paying the fees for them. So if I, I wanted to build up a collection of, um, of things that I and other creationists could use in their writings, I found two amateur astronomers uh, who uh, also were into photography and much better at it than I am, as it turns out. And so I asked them, can you give me your, some of your best photographs, let me use them? And they said, of course. And I've always uh, given attribution to them whenever I publish them. I'm glad that they're very nice to help me use these things. And then I got to thinking, um, there, there's, a, there's a book here possibly. Uh, Tom Vale uh, ran many uh, raft trips down through Grand Canyon. And he did it before he was born again man and then after he was. And so he had a very different viewpoint about Grand Canyon once he came to, came to salvation. And uh, so he, he collected a bunch of photographs that he and other people had taken of Grand Canyon. He asked several people to write essays for that book. And it was called Grand Canyon, A Different View. And the different view is referring to how uh, many of us view the formation and the age of Grand Canyon. And then um, one of my colleagues here at where I work at Answers in Genesis, Georgia Purdom, she's a biologist. She spent a week uh, sailing and visiting the Galapagos Islands, and she wrote a similar book, same size, same shape, Galapagos, a different view, again, dealing with uh, evolutionary ideas and creationary ideas, contrasting them there. And I wanted to do the same thing with uh, with astronomy, with these with, with these photographs. So this is kind of the third in the series that kind of decided what the, what the uh, title of the book would be. And uh, I've found many people have said they, they think it's a beautiful book because of the uh, many superb photographs in it. And I tell people it's okay if you just want to treat it like a National Geographic and flip through and look at the pictures, that's fine. <laughs> and then on the other hand, if you see a, an essay here and there you want to read, that's fine too. It's not the kind of book you have to read from cover to cover. Right. Just look and read what you're interested in. And I think you'll keep coming back to it. And maybe after a while, you'll eventually read all the text. There's not that much in there. You can probably sit down and read the whole book in an hour if you want yeah, and and I'll put it here a bit, a little bit bigger on the screen. I had it flipping through here. Let me let me adjust this here for a second. Uh, flipping through briefly uh, as you were talking to get some people some ideas of what it is. Uh, as you see on each one of these pages, now we're both covered, but each one of these pages is a little bit of text, some scripture verses, but just beautiful, beautiful pictures about how the universe is the way it is. And so I'm kind of curious uh, in your journey as well. Um, and then I'll make this go away so our faces are not covered. People I think are getting a wonderful idea of what they're going to get when they get this book. Um, but has uh, astronomy always been something that you are interested in what is it about uh, astronomy that really maybe drew you to it as something that you wanted to do more fully well i think uh, i'm i was created to be an astronomer i, I really mean that uh, i i remember sitting on the front stoop of a house we lived in when i was quite young looking up at the sky at night seeing stars and being fascinated with what i saw and we moved away from that place um, shortly after my fifth birthday. <laughs> so uh, as a preschooler, I really loved astronomy. And uh, when I was growing up, I'd see an astronomy book uh, in the library at school, and I'd check it out and read it. And I just really, really loved astronomy. I wasn't that keen on other sciences. But it wasn't until my sophomore year of high school um, that I discovered several things. It was a very important year in the development of my life. Uh, one of them, I discovered that um, you can actually make a living being an astronomer. And I thought, Really? You can get paid to do this? <laughs> and I was already pretty heavy into astronomy as an amateur, if you will. And then second of all, I, I realized that I had the ability to do this. And not everybody can. There's a lot of science, a lot of physics and math involved. And number three, I, I, just, I understood that that was God's calling in my life. So as a sophomore in high school, I decided to, to pursue this. And it's not like I work for a living. You know, I have, I've been drawing paychecks for decades, but haven't worked in decades as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> I, I, I love what I do, and I can't imagine doing anything else. And I can't imagine retiring uh, from doing what I do because I, I really yeah. do enjoy it. And I, I have a sense that this is my calling, my purpose, what I was made to do. So I feel very, very happy knowing that this is exactly what the Lord wants me to do. Yeah. It's amazing. Uh, you know, when, when the a career lines up like that, I feel the same way sometimes when I go to these summer camps and I spend a week working with students and giving lectures and it's like, this is work. This is fun. This is, I mean, I love having these sort of conversations. I do this for fun now to get paid for it. This is even better, but I understand what you mean, right? Yeah. When I was a kid, we would go to Lake Powell. Uh, this is just, you know, in the middle of, you know, Arizona, Utah, there's no lights around and, and we'd sleep on the top of the, uh, the houseboat. And I just remember night after night, laying up on top of the houseboat, looking up at the stars above and just being in such awe because in most big cities, uh, now growing up in Colorado, but now living near Los Angeles, you're not seeing that kind of stars on the average night. And 
so yep. just looking up be like this is amazing how beautiful now i'm kind of curious as well as then jumping into this um how would you say that your your christian faith has maybe influenced or affected uh your work as a scientist well i'm i'm uh, uh, what people call a recent creationist i uh, work for answers in genesis which is a recent creation ministry and that's always been my passion and has been my uh, de desire I uh, became a confirmed in my creationary beliefs again as a sophomore year, uh, sophomore in high school. That was uh, another important role in my life that year, and uh, so I, uh, I've maintained that uh, that approach and that understanding of the world around me ever since then. So, uh, more than just being an astronomer, I'm an astronomer with a passion for for what I call biblical creation, uh, which I understand to be recent creation, and that that's a bit different. <laughs> well, not a bit, a lot different from from most. Uh, most other astronomers. I've right. met very few atheist astronomers uh, and uh, many astronomers who know who I am and what I am and what I, what I do and what I believe. They're cool with that, believe it or not. I haven't really met a lot of opposition, but it's a, uh, uh, that's a very integral part of what I do. Apart from that, I, I can't imagine I would be an astronomer. I would be something else, I would think. Yeah. Yeah. And so, I mean, is there a sense of, you know, I think about, you know, uh, for me, I love the sciences. I'm not an astronomer, so I'm, I'm coming at this from a lay level, but I love the sciences because of, of kind of how I open the show of, of the heavens declaring the glory of God. And I see just amazing works of God in creation. And, and by studying that and learning about it, you know, learning and understanding him more fully. And so, uh, you know, how much of that is influencing, right, uh, of what you just said of, of maybe you're not an astronomer if you weren't a creation because of of this it really is a way to love God. Is, is that kind of a how you, maybe a way that you would put it? Yes. And, and, you know, when science began, as we know it, four centuries ago, right. uh, it was founded by Bible believing people, people heavily influenced by Christianity, many of them born again, some of them not, but yet heavily influenced by Christianity. Um, and to them, it was a God honoring thing that they were doing. You know, Kepler famously wrote that he was thinking God's thoughts after him. And I, I think Newton and others had a similar attitude about things. They, they viewed this very reverentially. They viewed it as a calling. Uh, you know, many people believe that uh, the only uh, worthy calling of a Christian is uh, be a missionary or a pastor or a Christian school teacher or something. But actually, that's, that's quite incorrect. There are many things that we can do uh, as, in full-time Christian service. You know, those years that I was at, a, at the university, it was a state university, uh, I I really kind of viewed what I was doing as being full-time Christian service uh, on the campus. Uh, it was no secret that I was a born-again man. I identified uh, pretty clearly with that. I wasn't the only one on campus. And um, I, I think I want, I want to encourage people that if you're, if you're a young person, particularly looking for what you, the Lord has for in your life, don't put on the blinders and think it only has to be a pastor or a missionary or something like this, what we think of traditional right. full-time Christian service. Uh, the Lord needs accountants, he needs dentists, he needs scientists, he needs attorneys, boy does he need attorneys, and Absolutely. on and on it goes. Uh, if, if God has called you to do these things, then do them and heartily unto the Lord. And that was what the yeah. Protestant Reformation was all about. Um, you know, they, they taught, the reformers taught that if you're called to be a, be a farmer, then be the best farmer you can be, and that is a holy calling. And being a scientist can be a holy calling as well. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more with that. You know, it reminds me of a conversation I had after speaking at a student conference on our science and faith compatible. Uh, a young girl, probably, I would guess, I don't know, eight, nine, 10 years old, walks up to me and said, hey, uh, can I be a scientist and a Christian? Is that okay? And I said, not only is it okay, but we need more of you, right? We we need more Christians in the sciences. I, I and yeah, and we should not have to shy away from this for these reasons. And so, uh, as you kind of mentioned in your views, being uh, a recent creationist and, um, you know, those who watch the show long enough uh, understand that I take an old earth uh, view, um, an old universe. Uh, we want to get there. And I, I have some questions for you, because as I mentioned to you, I think one of the best, in my opinion, best evidences for an old universe is is from astronomy. And so kind of curious to hear your perspective and your explanations of some of those things. But before we do, I kind of want to, as I mentioned, talk about areas maybe where Christians can agree. And so I'm curious kind of what you would say as, as far as like for those Christians trying to have conversations with non-Christians, what do you see as far as from astronomy as kind of having maybe the fingerprint of God? What are some of those kind of maybe key features of astronomy that you go, wow, this is clearly a creation of God, not uh, explainable by other explanations? Well, you know, in the book, probably my favorite chapter is the 10th chapter, the one on, on solar eclipses, you know, Four and a half years ago, 2017, we had the great solar eclipse, great American eclipse 
Did you happen to see totality in that one? What year was that again? 2017, August of 2017. I yes. You would have had to gone that... up into Nebraska or Idaho or someplace. Or Maybe not. Washington, I remember. Or Oregon or someplace. No, I remember about that time stepping outside my classroom and then doing the whole cup on a piece of paper thing and, and seeing something. Is that is that the okay. same event? <laughs> yeah. But I'm in well, Southern California. It may have been, but, but the thing is, to, totality is to be is where to be. Okay. Uh, there was about a 70-mile-wide swath from um, Portland to Charleston. Uh, where people were were treated to uh, totality, uh, it was my second total solar eclipse, and uh, those two solar eclipses were the two most remarkable things I have ever experienced. You know, people see the pictures, but the pictures don't do it justice. It it really is incredible to see this up in the sky, and it's a whole experience. You look around, you see what's going on around you. You look at people around you. It's an amazing phenomenon. Again, I'm not over, I'm not exaggerating. I'm not overstating it when I say it's the most remarkable thing I've ever seen. And having seen two eclipses, it'll blow your mind. But they're all very different. They're not like the two are not alike at all. So I'm looking for the next, looking forward to the next one in, in just a couple of years in 2024, April of 2024, the next one in the United States at least. Um, and and there's a remarkable thing going on here. The uh, sun is 400 times larger than the moon, but the sun is also 400 times farther away. Mm-hmm. And so when you consider those two factors, the sun and the moon are almost exactly the same size in the sky. They're they're one half degree across roughly. And so on those rare instances, when the moon passes in front of the sun, it generally just barely covers the sun up. That's why the path of totality is so narrow. And that leads to two things. Number one, the, the eclipses are very spectacular. Um, if, if the moon were a lot larger, a lot closer to us, it would be grossly overtotaled. They wouldn't be nearly as spectacular. Number two, they're also exceedingly rare. I read once a number of years ago, I wish I could find it again, but on average, uh, for any given location on the Earth, it's about four centuries between total eclipses. So oh, any given location can go for thousands of years and not have one, or, or it could mm. just be a matter of few years between the two. Generally, if you see one, you're going to have to be very lucky or travel uh, to get in the path of totality. Uh, very beautiful, very rare. And uh, if you look at the other natural satellites or moons in the solar system, no other uh, of those natural satellites or moons have that unique combination uh, giving you rare or and spectacular eclipses. Uh, sometimes they don't produce eclipses at all because the, the, the satellites are too small. They'll block out the sun. Sometimes they're grossly over total. And this is the only planet where it matters because it's the only planet where people happen to be living. And uh, to, to, to me, that, that speaks of design. It's not a design in the sense that if anything were any different, then we wouldn't be here at all because we couldn't right. survive. A lot of the design arguments dealing with the earth, for instance, uh, like Privileged Planet, you know, about that, that book and, and DVD yeah. about, about that. Um, this one's just the Lord being an artist and mm-hmm. showing off, if you will, uh, <laughs> producing this incredible uh, thing of nature. And, um, uh, and, and I can't imagine how anybody, it's a very moving experience to me when I see one. Uh, I, I can't imagine anybody looking at this and thinking, well, it's just, is it a marvelous coincidence? Well, no, right. it's not, not a coincidence <laughs> at all. And that speaks to design to me. And again, design, not, not of necessity, but one of beyond that. Sometimes it's good to have things designed in or just fun to have, yeah. like uh, DVD players and cup holders and cars. We really don't <laughs> need those, but people want them. And uh, this is far beyond that, I think. We, God's, we th- God's we really think a, a kind, kind individual to yeah, What's we that? think that we think those are needs. Uh, we, we've taken we've taken once yeah. and turned them into needs. Um, no, but I, I think, you yes. know, as yeah. I, yeah, you're right. There's a lot of design arguments that is more kind of that anthropic principle of, you know, if it's just right for life and if it were mm-hmm. any way, we wouldn't exist. Uh, but it almost seems like what you're talking about here is more kind of like the argument for beauty. Right. That, that we see this beautiful thing. And it's like, yeah, yeah, we don't need beautiful paintings to survive. But when you have beautiful paintings, it makes life more full. It makes life more enjoyable. And it tells you something about the painter. And so you still learn about the painter by looking at a beautiful painting, even though that beautiful painting is not necessary for our survival, like oxygen or whatever. Uh, but it's still, again, as it says, it, it can point to his handiwork, even though it's not necessarily keeping us alive in that sense. Um, yeah. So would you say this is one of your favorite things to kind of 
look at and observe? Uh, or are there other things that you just like are wowed by uh, when looking up into oh, I, the world I, above I, us? Yeah, I, I when people ask me, you know, what do I like to look at through the telescope? Uh, I have my my number one target is the planet Saturn. Hmm. Uh, if have you, have you ever seen Saturn through a good sized telescope? I mean, it's a remarkable thing. I first saw Saturn, uh, it was my uh, beginning of my, uh, would have been the beginning of my sophomore year, another <laughs> high school. <laughs> and um, uh, I, I had just a modest little telescope and um, it was small, it was, but yet it was distinct. I could see the rings just as sharp as could be. It looked like a little photograph or a drawing. It didn't even look real. I get that a lot. And I've looked at Saturn probably 10,000 times since then. I never get tired of looking at it. And my second favorite thing to look at through the telescope is probably the Orion Nebula. It's a large gas cloud uh, located in the sword of the constellation Orion. You can kind of make it out with the naked eye in a dark sky, but binoculars or a telescope really reveals it nicely. And uh, I love to show that to people. So sometimes when when I talk to people about going to the observatory and you want to, you want to see stuff? Yeah. Okay. I'll, I'll take you there. And well, I don't want to be a, bro a brother. I don't want to, you know, impose upon you. And I say, look, it gives me an excuse to go to the observatory. I love to see this, but um, going there to look at stuff by myself is not nearly as much fun as sharing it with people. And I'm always uh, eager to show, uh, share the, the, the world with, uh, through astronomy uh, with people. I have a program tomorrow evening with a, with a, with a, with a school group where we'll be uh, breaking out a few telescopes and looking at stuff. And I'm looking forward to that because I just love the wonder in, in people's eyes when they, when they see that for the first time. Oh yeah. And I don't, I don't, I've never had the opportunity to look through a good telescope. You know, I just, I probably one of those little ones you have as a kid that probably costs $15 at <laughs> whatever store you buy those at. Uh, but yeah, I, I mean, just looking at your pictures in the book and other things I've seen online, uh, absolutely uh, just breathtaking and, and beautiful. Um, now I'm kind of curious because, you know, uh, one of the kind of, uh, I guess, atheistic arguments uh, against creation from kind of astronomy is this idea that there's so much empty space uh, and that if God has designed things for life, why don't we see more life other places? Um, the fact that there's maybe so much empty space or what seems like wasted space, uh, why would God make it this way? I'm kind of curious, what would you say to that sort of argument that if there is this God designing things, why is there so much, what seems like so much wasted space? Yeah, that's kind of like a, I think it's called an argument of economy that um, basically if I were God, this is the way I would do it. Well, you're not God. <laughs> he, he didn't do it that well, uh, that, the way you would do it. Um, I don't look at it as much as empty space. I look at it in, in terms of the vastness of space, how, how large the universe is. Uh, I'll give you just a brief example. I do this little exercise with students from time to time. I make a scale model. Uh, the sun is the size of a basketball and the earth is a BB in comparison. And that BB is a hundred feet away from, from that basketball. And uh, Neptune is about 3,000 feet away from that basketball. And if the, um, um, if, these, if the sun is a basketball here near Cincinnati, then the next nearest star of any size is Alpha Centauri. It's a beach ball located somewhere near Honolulu. <laughs> and we're just getting started. Right. We're just getting started. Uh, on, on all of this. So the universe is incredibly huge. Uh, and that speaks to me of a powerful creator. It's far bigger than we can actually even comprehend or imagine. Uh, but as far as, you know, life elsewhere, I, I do believe we are alone in the universe. So I know of at least three lines of, of evidence scientifically that suggest that. But I, I do believe if you read scripture, it's, it seems to be centered on mankind, not that we're geometric, geographically the center, but we are the center of God's attention. And I have some theological arguments that I would bear in uh, to, to bring here that uh, uh, we we are alone in the universe. When people ask, uh, is there life elsewhere? What they really mean is there are beings like us out there in the universe. And again, the, the science, I think, is backing that up. We now have like 4,500 uh, exoplanets, planets discovered orbiting around other stars. I think if you would have asked 30 years ago, astronomers, if you told them when we had 40, almost 5,000 exoplanets, how many would be Earth-like? I think they would have said, oh, probably dozens, scores, maybe a few hundred. Turns out none of them are Earth-like. Right. Uh, it's, uh, they, there are a few they try to claim, but I, I think, I don't think they are at all. 
And uh, again, it's a scientific opinion that I have on this. We know so little about them, but we can eliminate almost all of them right out, right, right out, out, the, out the bat. So um, that tells me the unique situation God's put us in. Again, it comes back to the design. Uh, God just didn't fill the universe with a bunch of a bunch of living things. He filled the earth, and He did that for a reason. Uh, and I and I think that's a very very powerful argument uh, for for God's existence. You know, if if there is no Creator, then we had to come to come about through a naturalistic process. Right. Uh, that's the only other alternative. And if life is unique to the earth, then that that suggests or implies special creation. And so most evolutionists, not all, but uh, I'm talking now about uh, people, I should say, or naturalistic people, people who exclude a creator. Most people committed to naturalistic origins and nothing else. They, they have to argue that life is pretty common in the universe. They're playing the odds at that point. Otherwise, if the earth is unique, that's a problem for them. And the science is telling us that, uh, that we have uniqueness there. It's not something I can do with my photographs, but it's something I can do looking at the science of exoplanets. And again, that's something I think astronomy uh, is, is consistent with what I think is a proper attitude or proper um, <clears throat> conclusion we can reach from Scripture. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, I, it's, it's interesting trying to, I think, make that extrapolation of, of we're the only life and therefore everything else is, it must be wasted. Uh, I like to use a analogy, maybe it's not the best and you can maybe correct me if you think this is not very good, but it's like if you have this entire science lab that was designed and built um, to create life and you have this one little Petri dish of life, you go, well, if there's only one little Petri dish, why is there so much wasted space? Why are these all these empty rooms? It's like, well, each room had a, maybe a piece of the puzzle or each room is necessary or each room somehow fits into this. But you can't argue that just because there's only one little Petri dish of life or something that the rest of therefore the science lab is unnecessary. Um, and I think maybe there's a little comparison. Yeah, I, I, uh, I agree that. with you on that. Yeah. Um, now, when we I kind of... A, I think it's a good, good analogy. Perfect. All right. Well, then I'll keep using it. <laughs> Um, so when we kind of go from this vastness, as you talked about, of, of the nearest stars and that sort of stuff, and maybe come into our solar system, you, you talked about enjoying looking at Saturn, uh, but you often hear kind of arguments for fine tuning as far as when it comes to our own solar system and how the other planets in our solar system are necessary for maybe the life that we have here. Um, kind of what will you, uh, do you have anything that you want to kind of share or speak into this of how maybe even just the order and design of our solar system uh, points to God as being creator? Well, you know, I, it's one of the things I've been wrestling with for years as a, as a creation astronomer. Um, I, I'm very keenly interested in, in design in the world around us. And I've always had difficulty trying to uh, define it. It's one of those things that maybe I can't define, but I know it when I see it sort of things. Um, and just because we may not know what the design of something is, it doesn't mean there isn't any design there. Um, a couple of years ago, I was at a meeting and there was this interesting table there that was set up. And I was, I was surprised. I was really intrigued with the way the legs were shaped on. It was, it was shaped in an odd, odd way. And I, and I, I thought at first the, 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 ta the, tray, uh, the table had undergone an accident where it had been dinged up and bent the legs. But then I looked at it very carefully. No, the, the legs were designed that way. Clearly it was designed, but I couldn't figure out what the, the uh, design was and nobody with me I had several engineers in this meeting they couldn't figure it out either i even wrote a little article on it called the vestigial table because i could not <laughs> come up with the what what the design was and i'm still uh, flummoxed by it and that's a perfect example of what i'm talking about just because i don't re readily recognize the design in the solar system all over the place i think it does have a purpose and i have to go try looking for that um, one argument people have made is the size of Jupiter. It's, it's massive. It's very big. And it has a way of shielding the inner solar system from um, other things like comets. Uh, that's an interesting, interesting sort of argument. <clears throat> the moon plays a vital role, role for the Earth with the tides and with its, uh, um, its st stabilization of the Earth's rotation axis. Right. I think that's a design argument as well. Um, and I... <clears throat> When you look at the atmosphere the Earth has, you know, I mentioned exoplanets before, people who are studying exoplanets, looking for Earth-like planets, they are think the way to do this is to look for a, sign a spectral signature of a nitrogen-based atmosphere. 
where did they get the idea that a nitrogen-based atmosphere is good? Well, because the Earth has a nitrogen-based atmosphere, and there's several reasons mm. why that is a very good thing. And it seems to be unique in the solar system. <laughs> That's the reason why we don't find life anywhere else in the solar system. You look at, at uh, Venus, it's just the next closest planet to the sun, and it is a very hellish environment. The, the temperature on the surface of Venus is unbelievably high. Many metals would melt on its surface. You look at Mars, the next planet out, and uh, it's, it's unimaginably cold. Uh, a, a really hot, warm day on, on, on Mars is still colder than the, the coldest day on the Earth. It's, it's an, at that extreme between the two. That's the reason why they call the Earth the Goldilocks planet. Right. You know, you've got uh, you've got uh, too hot and too cold, just like in, in the story of the three bears and Goldilocks. Uh, I don't think that's an accident. I, I think yeah. the, the Lord specifically made Mars and Venus the way they are so that we in the 21st century, if our minds and our hearts are open to this evidence, can see just how wrong a planet like Earth can be. Yeah. And I don't think it's any accident that... Uh, that that the earth is the way that it is i mentioned before about solar eclipses and I, and I said some people just say what a marvelous coincidence that is well i have to ask you how many coincidences are you allowed to have before you start to realize that maybe these aren't coincidences you know if i'm if i'm flipping a coin and i get heads every time i flip it after about 20 flips most people would start to think there's something funny going on here <laughs> and I think the Earth is like that. I think there are a lot of things about the Earth that, that make it unique, but many people in the hardness of their hearts refuse to see it. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's yeah. How many times can you be a Delta Royal flush before you realize the deck has been stacked? Um, similar thing there. Um, you know, you know, I, I want to make a little, little, uh, <laughs> a little confession here. I've only played poker once in my life. I was illustrating. It was in a lab, actually. I was teaching at the university. Uh, uh, we were. Um, I was trying to teach my students the difference between microstates and macrostates. That's something in thermodynamics. Um, a particular uh, uh, hand of five cards is a microstate. If you stipulate all five cards, but if it's a royal flush or a, or a full house or whatever, that's that's a that's a that's a macrostate. Well, we we're playing the game, and I wasn't dealt it, but I threw two cards away and picked up two cards, and I had a royal flush. As you're using this explanation. <laughs> Yeah, and, and you know, some people play play poker uh, one night a week for 20 years and never see one, let alone have one. I only played yep. once and I had it. I will never play poker again. And by the way, <laughs> we were not playing for money. We were playing for uh, these slotted weights. You know, I see your five grams. I, weigh, I raise you 10 grams. We're <laughs> the lab for that. I made sense in the lab to do it. But yeah. I really did have a royal flush once. Wow. But you know, it's pretty rare to get one of those. Oh, yeah. I, there was one time I was yeah. playing with You're a friend. Getting, you're talking about getting royal flush after royal flush after royal oh, yeah. flush, and that's what the earth is all about. Absolutely, it's a royal yeah. flush product. Yeah. So, so when you when you look at that, you know, I'm just kind of curious as you as you talk to skeptics and you talk about you know meeting atheist astronomers and something, you know, what would be maybe the 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 main piece of evidence or what you think is the best piece of evidence if there is one or uh, to to help them see the design and fine tuning, help them point to God and help them start to consider the God question, or, or is it really kind of depend person to person and what they find more persuasive? Oh, I, I think it's very much person to person. You got to find out where, where the person is, what's the, what, yeah. what their issues are and those kind of things. I will share with you one, one argument that I've used with people. And I think it's a, it's, it's one that goes back to physics actually, but it is related to astronomy. Um, you know, we have the first law of thermodynamics and the second law of thermodynamics. The one is conservation of energy. The other one is that uh, energy is continually going towards less and less usability. That's what we call entropy. And these two laws work in the here and now. They seem to be uh, laws that are always obeyed, always followed in the here and now. And I have every every uh, confidence that it will it worked in the past in my lifetime, I have every confidence it will work tomorrow and the day after that and the day after that, unless someone such as God intervenes. Well, let's extrapolate these two laws into the past. If you extrapolate the first law of thermodynamics into the past, it tells you that the universe could not have had a beginning. Because if the universe had a beginning, you didn't have energy, you didn't have matter and energy, and then you did. That would be a huge violation of the first law of thermodynamics. The but on the other hand, if you take the second law of thermodynamics, it says that life energy is becoming less and less useful. And so if you extrapolate that into the past, 
you realize that the universe could not have always existed because if it did, we would have already reached the maximum entropic state and we're, we were clearly not in that condition. So the second law says the universe had to have a beginning. The first law says the universe could not have had a beginning. Do you see the conflict there? If we extrapolate the first and second laws of thermodynamics, which work in the here and now into the past, there's a contradiction. One of them, at least one of them has to be violated. And I conclude from that that the, that the origin of the universe does not have a naturalistic or physical ex, uh, explanation. I believe the first and second law of thermodynamics, if properly understood, extrapolated to the past, tell us that the universe had to have a metaphysical, non-physical uh, beginning. And it doesn't tell us who began it or why they began it or when they began it. It simply tells us that it had a metaphysical origin. And I think it's folly to attempt to explain the universe, the origin of the universe, in terms of simply physical, natural processes. People such as Lawrence Krauss continually try right. to do that. And I think they're barking up the wrong tree. And they have not really considered the, 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 the fact that those two laws of science, two laws of thermodynamics, argue very strongly against uh, a naturalistic origin. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I think, yeah, that's a powerful argument for the beginning of the universe and what our science is revealing about that. Now, when it comes to kind of what we can know about God, you mentioned this at the very beginning. This is a short little essay uh, that is in the book talking about the gospel written in the stars. Um, is God <laughs> revealing his gospel, the death of Jesus Christ and salvation through astronomy or what exactly? Uh, what are the limitations, I guess, of what we can learn from the sciences and astronomy in particular? Now, I've been battling the gospel in the stars for many, many years. I first learned about it, I think, in 1979, believe it or not. And uh, I, I was just surprised that people actually believe this. And I've, I've sort of made it a lifetime of study. I've read about every book I can find on the subject. And I've written extensively on it, actually. I, I've, I've written a number of articles. I've got one book. I have three chapters just devoted to that. And my thorough examination of that is I think it's rubbish. I decided to put uh, something, I mentioned that in the book because it's a question that keeps coming up again and again and again. I'll just give you a quick example. Uh, Orion is one of my two favorite constellations. It's a favorite constellation of a lot of people. It's just big, it's bright, it just resembles a man in the sky. It's really cool. And um, it is mentioned uh, three times in the Old Testament, twice in, uh, uh, in Job and once in Amos. I, use, I quote that in, in the book as well. I'll give you the references there. Um, but Purveyors of the Gospel in the Stars say that Orion is a type of Christ. And that, uh, that, that's problematic because if you look up the Hebrew word for, for Orion, the word used, it's kasil, which is one of the two Hebrew words for fool. Uh, the other, one of the Hebrew words for fool is the impious one who is um, uh, anti-God, rebel against God. The other one is just simply someone who acts imprudently. And that's the second word. Kasil means an imprudent person. Well, I'm sorry, but but Jesus is not a fool of any type. And I'm, I'm somewhat offended by that. And so I, I think that's my, my silver bullet argument against gospel in the stars. It's one thing that keeps coming up again and again. There may be people listening to this broadcast who are going to say, oh, no, <laughs> and, uh, you know, write me off at that point. But um, I am thoroughly convinced it's wrong. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, again, as you mentioned at the very beginning of the show, that the heavens are declaring the glory of God. As Romans chapter one says, it shows us God's divine attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature. And so it leaves us without excuse, uh, but it does not tell us about the cross. It does not tell us about our sin. It does not tell us about the sacrifice of Jesus and that which is necessary for salvation. That is what we need scripture for. Um, now, one thing, as Absolutely. I mentioned, uh, throughout this conversation, we're going to have a friendly conver uh, little conversation. I've got questions for you and where I kind of see some, maybe some disagreements and some uh, uh, on the different perspectives on when and or how old things are specifically. Uh, but one thing that I notice is, is that throughout the book, you, you use, I guess, if I can say it this way, the 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 dating, I guess, of what you normally hear in astronomy of this galaxy or this star is millions of light years away. Um, and and this to me is, is I think, one of the most powerful arguments, in my opinion, uh, of an old universe is that if a star is a million light years away, then it means the light took a million years to get here, which would not be possible if things are much more recent. And so I'm just kind of curious on what do you think about that argument, uh, you know, the, the light time travel problem from a more recent creation view? Uh, and then what are your experts? explanations uh, uh, from a, uh, your perspective as an astronomer of that light time travel problem. 
Yeah, that's a very fair question. It's a question we get quite a bit. I'd be surprised if you didn't ask me that question tonight. <laughs> Even if you did agree with me, you probably would would ask the question. And you know what? If I were if I were trying to make a case for 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 uh, ancient creation of billions of years, that would be one direction I'd go probably. So it is an it is something we need we need to deal with. But the first thing I need to point out is, you know, the light year is not actually a unit of time at all. It's a unit of distance. Um, you know, if someone asked me uh, how far it was from where I live to Chicago. I'd probably tell them uh, five hours. You, you ask me how far it is. It, it, that's a unit of length, but no uh, uh, distance. But I, I answered in time, and you understand that there's a travel time. You're going to presume that I'm traveling at typical highway speed. And we do the same sort of thing in astronomy. Instead of saying it's you know so many miles or astronomical units or parsecs or whatever, we oftentimes will colloquially say, well, it's X number of light years. Presumably, the, if light's traveling at a constant rate, um, then it moves about 6 trillion miles per year. And so if, if I say something is 1,000 light years away, then you can work out the math, how many miles that is, if you dare or if you care. Um, now, having said that, uh, then that seems to imply that that time had to be there in order to have to happen. So the Andromeda galaxy is a little over 2 million light years away. It would suggest then that the light we're looking at left the Andromeda galaxy over 2 million light years, uh, two, 2 million years ago. And so that would suggest that, uh, again, great age at that point. Now, there have been several suggested solutions over the years, mature creation that Henry Morris liked quite a bit. Russ Humphreys had his uh, several versions of a relativistic solution. Uh, Jason Weil has his, and there have been a few others. I see problems and I see benefits of each one of those. So a few years ago, probably 15 years or more ago, I began um, going in a particular direction for my explanation. And uh, I, I want to point out that... that um, uh, God didn't make everything during the creation week instantly, and he didn't make them ex nihilo. Certainly the initial creation was ex nihilo and probably instant. But when you look at the creation of man, uh, God formed him from the dust of the ground. It probably took a little time to do that. Not much, but it took some time to do that. Formation of Eve out of a side, same deal. If you look very carefully, and I missed this myself for many, many years, the uh, birds and land animals God made out of the dust of the ground as well, just as he made man, apparently. So we see process going on quite a bit during the creation week, process that um, might take a little while, maybe certainly not, I wouldn't think uh, long periods of time, millions of years, but it would have taken, uh, taken more than just an instant amount to take place. Particularly on day three, if you look at the description there, and I think verses uh, 11 and 12, I believe, it speaks of the of the plants coming up out of the ground. And if you right. really look at the words and, and what's going on there, it uh, the plants, are, I think, were just thrust shooting out like this and growing a lot like you would imagine with a, with a time-lapse video being done on plants. Normal growth abnormally fast. My friend Eric Coven did a movie a few years ago called uh, Genesis Paradise Lost. I was actually in that movie a little bit. And I was pleased to see how he handled the creation of plants on day three. It, it, he showed it just as I imagined it. The ground sitting here and all these plants rising up like this. Uh, towards maturity. I think the reason why they, they did that is because uh, in verse 30 of the Genesis 1 account, it says that um, all, uh, all creatures and man were, were vegetarian at that point. They were all eating the fruit of, of these plants, and they could not fulfill their purpose for being food if they were not mature, if not by the end of day three, certainly by the end of days five and six. So uh, uh, in, in similar manner, I think on day four, we have God making the astronomical bodies, the luminaries in the sky, and several purposes are given to them, but they could not fulfill their, fulfill their purposes either unless we could actually see the light here on the earth. So what I'm suggesting is as God rapidly brought the plants out of the ground on, on, on day three, I think on day four, God rapidly brought this light here. It's a miraculous sort of thing. It's not a naturalistic explanation as some of my creation science brethren want to make it, uh, nor am I just uh, uh, saying, well, God naturalistically sped up the speed of light. If he sped up the speed of light, he did it in a supernatural way and uh, brought the light here very quickly. Now, is there a transition somewhere between that very rapid bringing of light and the stasis we see today? Absolutely. Uh, what does that mean or what kind of implications does it have for my suggestion? I don't know. I've been thinking about that for a very long time. It's a work in progress. But um, I think we need to, we, we sometimes underestimate the role of the miraculous during the creation week. The language there seems to speak of a lot of miraculous things taking right. place. 
so that's that's my solution. I shared it briefly in the book as well. I've written on it elsewhere too, if people want to look into it more. But that, in a, in a, like a two-minute summary, three-minute summary, <laughs> is where I'm at with this kind of explanation. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I guess it would more so not necessarily be. Uh, I mean, because it kind of it seems like what you described maybe is a, a blend, if I can say that, of some of the, the views that I often hear of either the velocity of light was different, where it was super speed and then now is slowed down uh, in that, as you said, kind of miracle grow of the plants. Uh, or is it, you know, what about the view that, you know, God just created it already there uh, in transit? Um, and and that is another view I guess I've heard. What did yeah. Well, I'm glad you noticed that because uh, I'm well aware that uh, that it seems to have elements of the others, kind of like a hybrid, if you will. Uh, one thing I didn't like about mature creation or light created in transit is it would suggest that that uh, the light of these distant objects never actually left those objects. And that then raises the issue of much of the universe may not even exist at all. All you need is the light. So it's like a giant hologram. That's problematic for me. One uh if you believe in mature creation, then uh, for answer that solu- that problem, then when you look at the the Andromeda galaxy, you're not you're not seeing light that actually left it. You're seeing light that sort of is in transit as if it did leave it, but it never actually did. With my solution, the light actually did leave that that galaxy. It actually was the light was produced by stars. I just don't think it was two million years ago. I think it was much more recently than that. Um, as far as uh, the, the change in the speed of light, that, that, that uh, solution was attempting to explain the rapid speed of light in the past through, um, through a naturalistic process. Uh, and I'm suggesting a supernatural process. Uh, some, some creation science brethren have you know, chided me on this and, and they're, they're trying to say, you know, insist that it must have a, a physical natural explanation. I'm telling, well, what, what else in the creation week has a natural or physical explanation? The appearance of life? I don't think so. The appearance of matter and energy? I don't think so. You go down the list. Uh, none of these things they would agree with, that they would think were naturalistic, but suddenly they get to this one thing, it has to be a naturalistic. And what else do you want? You want a physical explanation for the virgin birth and the resurrection? You know, certain things... Uh, that have happened in the world are miraculous and and you can't really believe scripture without accepting that fact you know the, yeah. the, the miracle of uh, miracle of creation the miracle of um, the virgin birth and the miracle of the resurrection and the future resurrection that were promised as saints yeah absolutely you know and, and i think there's a there's a, some really good points in trying to understand and, and think through this and and questions i had again as i you know reading your kind of explanations and hearing you talk about it now is is um is to try to deny them miraculous i think that's where i'm trying to in the first part of this conversation you know where i think all christians need to be in agreement of there's clearly a miraculous thing taking place of god fine-tuning designing and making uh the universe for sure um i guess the, the question i have in talking about you know trying to figure out a a a, a natural explanation for the resurrection you're not going to find because it's a supernatural event, but there's times in which God does miracles that leave effects in the natural world, right? Where you have Jesus alive at one point, dead at one point, and alive again at another point. And so even though you may not have a natural explanation for why that happens, because it's a miracle, it's supernatural, uh, it still does kind of leave that natural effect behind that I guess can be studied. Um, And so uh, if you, uh, and how I kind of uh, apply this to the, the the distance of the stars is, is uh, there's a miraculous event taking place. Uh, but what we see is that a star appears to, I guess, to be a long ways away. And you talked about how it's more uh, distance, right? Rather than time. Um, but isn't that the time is, is measured or the distance is measured by time. And so what would be, yep. I guess, what, would it be similar to, you know, I hear sometimes is kind of the appearance of age argument of it's kind of like Jesus making the, the wine that tastes old, but we know it's new wine. Um, what would be the, the explanation maybe, or the necessity of, of having the Andromeda galaxy uh, be 2 million light years away, but not actually, I guess I'm trying to understand. It's not actually that, or it is that far, but the light it has is that far. come quickly. Um, but without, I guess, how do I say it? Without scripture, I guess, it, it's giving us all the appearance that it actually is taking that much time to yeah, get here, uh, right? And, and I, I fully recognize the tension. Uh, I, I can't apologize for that. Um, but getting back to the quote-unquote appearance of age, I don't like that terminology, but for, for lack of any other, I think the, the, the marriage feast, feast at Cana is, is a good example. Uh, certainly the, uh, the master of the feast thought the wine had been around for a while, 
he said, you know, usually you hold back the good stuff. You give the good stuff first and, and then uh, you, you give the cheap stuff later. But you held back the best stuff until last. Well, this was actually, I think, the third day of the feast. So he thought it was at least three days old. And I think uh, other than the people who actually witnessed the, 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 the miracle, uh, they would have thought the wine was uh, been aged for a while and so forth. So any kind of miracle of that type seems to um, seems to have built into it some appearance of age. The uh, fish and the bread that were multiplied, uh, the fish had had bones. They had other structures. The bread, you know, it takes a while to raise those. So people reached a wrong conclusion about the true age of these things based upon their own experience, but it was still a wrong conclusion. Right. So. I don't think the Lord's being deceptive, but I, but it, it is a problematic thing, and 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 I've given you what I think is the best best explanation within within a recent time frame. Yeah. So when um you know if uh, by by the yeah. way, are, are you aware that Big Bang cosmogony has a light travel time problem too? Uh, what would you um can you maybe explain it's, that a little it's, bit for? It's called the horizon problem. Yeah, uh, it's this problem that you know, disparate parts of the universe are at the same temperature within one part in hundred thousand, yet they've never been in thermal contact with each other to get that same temperature. How is the universe like that? And of course, they solved that problem supposedly uh, forty years ago with cosmic inflation. Um, to me, I don't see a lot of difference between <laughs> between what I'm proposing and cosmic inflation. We still don't know what caused cosmic inflation. We don't know how, why it came about. We don't know why it stopped. Uh, we don't know the mechanism, and there's no evidence that it ever happened other than the fact that we're here, and we have this problem to try to solve. And I think many people who are critical of the light travel time problem for recent creation are not aware or they're not, they're, 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 they, they don't want to talk about the light travel time problem that the Big Bang cosmogony has as well. Um, yeah. They say, "Well, you're just invoking a miracle to explain away a problem." Well, I look at I look at cosmic inflation with no evidence and no mechanism, but yet you somehow think that's not a miracle. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and, and and so you know, touche. It goes both ways. Yeah. Yeah, and I would not trying to go toe to toe with you on astronomy here, um, yeah. uh, but uh, absolutely, I think I, maybe if I can maybe try to explain how I'm trying to understand this is. Um, I guess you mentioned meeting uh, atheist astronomers, and I'm curious, is there, mm -hmm. uh, if you were approaching this and you knew nothing about worldviews from a naturalistic worldview to a, to a Christian worldview perspective, and you had, kind of, I guess, only the astronomical evidence to go from, uh, there's definitely going to be problems in the sense that we, we don't understand the world around us. We don't understand everything, and there are problems that we're trying to solve. Uh, but what would, what would you say is maybe the evidence pointing to uh, pointing to a recent creation from astronomy that um, that comes simply from astronomy, not knowing other worldview uh, considerations approaching the evidence. If that question makes sense, like if you if you weren't a Christian, yeah, what I, would be the I, evidence pointing to a young Earth or young universe? Yeah, I, I, I think we got to be careful. The um, people like precision, but many of our, our age estimates, I think, are, are upper limits to things. You can eliminate things all longer than that, but you can't. Uh, necessarily it could be no older than this but 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 it could be quite a bit younger and uh, i would look at the uh, magnetic field of the earth they they impose they invoke uh, geomagnetic reversals to somehow salvage that people don't realize you have to regenerate the field in between how does that field get regenerated in between uh, and there are other problems i could go into but i think the decay we actually measure on the magnetic field of the earth suggests a, a fairly recent origin the evolution, uh, tidal evolution of the Earth-Moon system, it indicates an upper limit of a little over a billion years. I know that's not thousands of years, but it would seem to eliminate something more than than uh, than a billion years. And since uh, 4.6 billion years seems to be the preferred age of the Earth-Moon system, uh, that would seem to eliminate that. And when I bring that up, I get all sorts of special pleading. Uh, but again, these are these are explanations without any evidence. That's fine. You can model it. You can claim it, but but it's a, it's kind of an item of faith at that point. You've got evidence that's telling you that you can't have something that old yet. You're saying it is. You know, those those are just a couple of things that I would I would suggest on these. The early faint sun paradox is another one. Um, it would seem to to be a problem, and I can't recall if I talked about that in the book or not. But uh, yeah. it's it's a problem if uh, if the if the world is really billions of years old. How is it that we've maintained a, a pretty stable existence on the on the Earth through all of that? You you would have to invoke two totally unrelated mechanisms 
uh, pretty much exactly compensating each other over billions of years. And that seems extremely unlikely. Now, if a person is an old earth creationist, they could they could hypothesize God designing into that, you know, a way to do that. So there's a way out if you are a, uh, an old earth creationist. If you're not an old earth creationist, you're just an old earther, uh, then you have a problem. <laughs> yeah. The science doesn't really work for you very well. Yeah, absolutely. So you mentioned the, the faint sun paradox. Um, so and you, you talked about kind of special pleading arguments. Uh, we're running out of time and I want to get to a question here in the live <laughs> chat. Um, but I'm just, I'm just, you know, I always have these kind of conversations and I just get so interested. I want to know. And I'm like, Hey, all you listeners, sorry, your questions are irrelevant. I have questions. No. Um, <laughs> but uh, uh, what would you kind of, uh, how, what is your understanding, I guess, of what I've heard of some of the evidence suggested as of recently of studying other stars similar to our sun and seeing um, kind of the, the mass of that star decreasing in its infancy and this being an explanation of our sun having a larger mass. Uh, and yes, it was fainter, but the larger mass made it more warmer. And so that kind of solution to the paradox, the faint sun paradox that, that you've presented here. Well, I, I, I don't think it's so much based upon evidence as much as it is based upon modeling. Uh, I just read something recently. I was in the news recently about uh, uh, yet another solution of the uh, early, fan, uh, the, the young faint sun paradox. Over the past 30, 40 years, there have been probably eight or 10 different solutions <laughs> proposed, which that number of solutions ought to tell you that, that it's problematic. But I, my recollection of seeing this in the last couple of months was that it was primarily based upon modeling, not so much upon observation. Yeah, okay. Which, by the way, yeah. I, I want to come back to something, if we could, that it's not in the book kind of beyond that, but you jog my memory on something about design. Yeah. Uh, for decades, astronomers have been looking for what they call uh, solar analogs. These are stars that are like the sun in many respects, the same right. spectral type, all that kind of stuff. And um, for many years, many, many years, they couldn't find any. They have found a few now, but what's interesting is stars like the sun tend to be unstable. They tend to pulsate and uh, be variable. The sun is remarkably stable. And that makes the sun unusual in that respect. Why? <laughs> Why has the sun the odd one out again? And again, that, that suggests to me some design aspect that God made the sun unusually stable. Uh, how he does that, I don't know. Nobody knows yet. I, I think I know why, of course, but most astronomers are a little baffled by that. But that's another design aspect that couldn't come out in the book. But that's, a, that's one of the little throwaway things that just jogged my memory as we were talking there. Yeah. And I definitely agree with you there in the sense that, um, you know, I, I, I look at the world around us and no matter, you know, how we try to explain it from a different perspective within a creation framework, I think, it, like I said, it all points back to design. And, and I see a hard time getting around this, um, you know, from a, a, a non-theistic, naturalistic way of how you get such perfect, um, you know, stability of the sun for that long uh, period of a time. Uh, now, quick question for you that came in here from the Lime Chat uh, from SlamRN. Thanks for sending that in. Slam says, uh, you said uh, that you had another explanation for the C cosmic, I think that's cosmic, no, CMB, um, than it uh, being left over from the Big Bang. Can you discuss it? Yeah, very briefly, um, I, I developed, uh, I really dived into, after I arrived at AIG back nine years ago, dived into trying to figure out what the uh, cosmology implied in the first chapter of, Gen first chapter of Genesis is. The, particularly, I was very interested in, in the day two account, the Rakia, the expanse of firmament, the King James. I've, um, from, from my study on this, I've concluded that the, uh, the Rakia that God made on day two is what we would call the day space of the universe or outer space. And the purpose of the uh, rakia was to separate waters below from waters above. The waters below are pretty pretty clear. It's waters on the on the earth today, on the surface of the earth. But what about those waters above? Uh, it, it seems to me that if the rakia is in between, then the the, the the water is at the edge of the universe. Yeah, I just uh, you heard me right. Uh, I believe based upon what I understand, Genesis day two creation is telling us. The universe has an edge to it. It's finite in size. Probably the Earth is somewhere near the center of that. I'm not an absolute geocentrist in that case. And I don't think scripture is clearly demanding this. It's an inference that I'm drawing. And so I, I'm left with the conclusion that we've got the Earth sitting here, very a lot of universe around us. And at the edge of the universe, at the edge of the universe, there's, there's water uh, sitting there. 
And that's what I'm drawing from, from my biblical cosmology as I understand it. Now, let me just apply two items of science for it right there. If there's water surrounding the universe, like in a shell, very far out from the Earth, somewhere near the center, then uh, being normal baryonic matter, it must radiate. It, presumably, if it has a temperature above absolute zero, and I think everything in the universe has that, then you've got the, all this this uh, radiation uh, coming from that that layer of water out there. And that radiation would then be coming back towards us at the center of near the center of the universe. And we know from the Hubble relation that objects at great distance, their radiation is, is greatly redshifted. Why that's the case? It could be expansion, could be something else. Expansion is the most reasonable explanation. It doesn't matter for my purposes. The, um, the temperature of that emission coming from that water at the edge of the universe will be cooled somewhat. So, if you could run back the clock, say 60 years, if somebody or 70 years, if someone had taken the approach to, to Genesis day, day two account that I am, they could have predicted that there was a radiation field of very low temperature coming from every direction in space, which is exactly what the CMB is. Hmm. I didn't set out to try to come up with an explanation for that, for the CMB. I simply was looking for what I consider biblical cosmology. And after I got done, I suddenly realized, well, here's just falling out of that pretty naturally is an alternate explanation. So I've offered that as a modest proposal. Appreciate it. Awesome. Well, we just hit an hour and I told you it'd be an hour. I have one last question. Can I steal an extra few minutes sure. from you? <laughs> I've still got uh, so at least half my battery here. So I, I am good. Oh, we <laughs> so can just keep going then. No, I'm just, yeah. um, but, uh, as, as people who've watched the show before, my perspective uh, on, on the age of the earth and how I try to understand it is, is that uh, my view is that I don't think that scripture uh, forces us to one view or the other. I think that there's things like obviously the resurrection that it's very clear about, dogmatic about, there's no other alternative explanation that maybe Jesus didn't rise from the dead. Like, no, there's no other option. Uh, and so if scripture saying there's no other option, we need to make sure there's no other option. Uh, my view is that I think the Bible does allow for either old or young. And then I take the scientific evidence and go, okay, what do I see in astronomy and other aspects of science? And I think it points to old. And so therefore that's kind of how I reconcile it. And so I'm kind of curious um, from you and kind of how you approach it. Is it more of... Uh, we, we take the Bible first and the Bible clearly teaches young. Uh, there's no other alternative. It can't be old. And therefore now we look for scientific explanation and, and, and what does the sciences have to say that, that matches that? Cause it should match. If this is the way that God has created it, it should match. Um, or, uh, would you say that even if the Bible is, is open to the possibility of old, um, that, uh, it's either, or, and that we can have you for use our science to maybe understand which one maybe is more accurate, um, that it would still uh, that the science is good enough that it would convince you it's young still, even if the Bible allows for that possibility? Or would you say if the Bible opens it up, um, that may change how we see the science, if that makes sense? So kind of a, is it starting with the Bible? Yeah. Uh, the Bible clearly teaches young. There's no other possibility. And therefore, we see that in science as well. And we look for scientific data to support that. Um, or is it, uh, man, if the Bible is open to both options, the scientific evidence still points young? Yeah. I, uh, I I would say the former that uh, that the Bible I think clearly teaches that the, that the universe is young, the world, the creation is young. It wasn't that long ago that God created it, and so uh, it's my job. I have a much more difficult job than you have because I'm swimming <laughs> up a much stronger current. Uh, oh, for sure. Uh, and, and and I have my job is to interpret the world around me in terms of my worldview. I have a set of assumptions that I have, and I don't you know I make new. Uh, apology for the fact that I based it on what I understand, my yeah. understanding of scripture. I want to make it very clear, however, that uh, uh, we don't make this a salvation issue. You know, if, if you if you don't believe the world's only, only thousands of years old, then then you're going to hell. That's that's improper. That's wrong. Uh, so we get accused. By the way, we get accused of that all the time, <laughs> but we never say that. At least at least my employer answers in Genesis doesn't say that. I don't say that. I I think a few people do say that but most of us don't. We, it's an important issue to us, yeah. but it's not a salvation issue. And, I, and I, I, that seems to be very importantly said right up front, just because two Christians may disagree on the age of the earth. It doesn't mean that one of them isn't a Christian. That's, that's not it at all. That's very, very improper to take that yeah. approach. And I thankfully that. most of us don't do. 
Yeah, I appreciate that. We are two Christians having this conversation, trying to understand scripture. So last question, I guess, kind of going along with that. I'm just curious. If you were to be convinced that the Bible allowed for the possibility of an ancient universe, uh, would that change how you look at astronomy? They say, wow, then therefore I do see this in astronomy, or would you still hold to a young universe, even if the Bible allowed for that possibility? No, if, if I were convinced that, that scripture actually taught other than what I'm saying now, what I believe now, then of course I would change change my worldview. What if it Again, wasn't teaching? The... What if it wasn't teaching? It is old, but it just said uh, the scripture maybe left that question open, and and either option could be yeah. a, a viable understanding. Would you yeah. then switch over? Yeah. I, I I I might. I I likely would. I, I don't know because I don't I don't I can't accept the premise. Right. But, but I yeah. would say that that that. Uh, if my understanding of scripture changed then on that one issue, then my, my approach to my science would change. Yeah. And it's all part of my worldview. Absolutely. And I ask that because, you know, I'm in that same position, whereas I, if I believe that scripture clearly teaches young, then we have to reconcile that. uh, And and we don't just reconcile by just throwing out what scripture says. Uh, But because I hold the position where I think that that it doesn't teach young or old. And I think it leaves that question open. Therefore, I think we have that more freedom as I'm kind of mentioning uh, to go wherever we think maybe the science leads. And so um, anyways, well, I've kept you past time. I appreciate this conversation. I know it's been, uh, I've enjoyed it and I hope other people have as well. So thank you, Dr. Faulkner, for taking the time to come on. Talk about your book. Again, I want to encourage people to check it out because it is filled with beautiful, beautiful pictures and lots of wonderful information. And even though maybe, hey, we're not going to see eye to eye on every single detail in there, there's a lot of incredible details and information in that book that I think is valuable for Christians to see and understand as it talks about how the heavens declare the glory of God. So Dr. Faulkner, thank you so much for coming on and having this conversation with me. Well, thank you for having me. Absolutely. Well, everybody, I hope that you've enjoyed this conversation. And let me just say next week is going to be a conversation on the pro-life topic, but a very different issue rather than making the case for the unborn or how to have conversations with pro-choicers. It's going to be focusing on how to love women who are find out that they are in an unplanned pregnancy position. How do we come alongside and compassionately love women and help them with this conversation? And so that's going to be the topic next week, talking about this with Natasha Smith, writing the book, Unplanned Grace. It's going to be a good time. Again, Monday, 4 p.m. same time as this one and so anyways i hope you guys have enjoyed this there's lots of other videos that you can check out as my goal here is to help you think deeply about christianity defend it well and faithfully live it out so thank you so much for joining me in this conversation today continue to think deeply about god and jesus because they are worth thinking about god bless everybody see you later see you next week for another interview bye Your love will guide my